You're listening to Irreverent Bible Talk, a podcast that's not your grandma's Bible study, unless your grandma happens to be really, really cool. Listener discretion is advised if you object to bad words, women preachers, or terrible puns. Welcome to Irreverent Bible Talk. I'm Jenny. I'm a Lutheran pastor, and my favorite Christmas movie is The Muppet Christmas Carol. And I'm Josh, and I'm an audio guy, and I really love the Mickey Mouse, the Disney Christmas Carol with Ebenezer Scrooge, played by Scrooge McDuck. Today on the podcast, we are talking about Christmas. If you have a Christmas nativity that you set up in your house every December, it's probably not biblically accurate. So grab a beer, a mocktail, a cup of coffee, or that spiced eggnog, and join us as we explore how the Bible is more complicated and more fascinating than you might expect. Well, Jenny, we are on our Christmas episode number two, I guess, but we're going full Christmas nativity. We're talking about the the birth this time. Yeah, absolutely. And before we dive into it, uh, Josh, what are you drinking? Today, I rooted through the fridge because it's it's been a week. Um, I am drinking a strawberry lime hard seltzer. Ooh, is it good? It is not. Oh, no. <laughs> that, like, artificial, like, fruit flavor? Yeah. And it's just, yeah. You know, it's that, that like, flavored water. It's just not. It always just feels like there's it's missing something when you try to take a drink of it. Fair, fair. But anyway, what about yourself? I am drinking a New Belgium Cashmerize IPA. I've been getting a lot of shit for almost always drinking IPAs. In my defense, I like them. And also my husband likes them. So when he buys beer, that's usually what he buys. In this case, this beer was actually a gift from a church member. You know who you are. Shout out for sending my husband and I home from a Christmas party with beer. That's pretty awesome. You can't really argue with that. And, uh, you know, New Belgium has some good stuff, so... They do. I like this one. It's good. Yeah, I don't have any complaints with them. But anyway, so we're going to cover, uh, like we said, the Christmas story. We're going to do mostly focus on Matthew chapter 1 and then Luke chapter 2. Yeah. We're really talking about these. So, uh, like I said in the intro, uh, if you uh, set up a nativity scene or a crash in your house, uh, or maybe that's like a family tradition that you had when you were growing up, it is probably not biblically accurate. We're going to talk about it, but those shepherds and wise men, fully two different books of the Bible. There probably wasn't a donkey. There's no donkey mentioned. It probably wasn't a stable or a barn. So yeah, there's all kinds of problems with uh, the nativity scenes, but we love them anyway, so it's all good. Fair enough, and uh, we apologize to our Eddie Murphy donkey fans, but yeah, not in this story. There is especially not a talking donkey voiced by Eddie Murphy in any of the Gospels. I feel real confident in saying that. You know, that would be pretty interesting, and that might be how we get the- I got nothing. <laughs> My husband and I were at Universal Studios pretty recently, and there was a thing, the context does not matter, but there was a bit where it had Eddie Murphy as the donkey and Chris Rock as the zebra from Madagascar, like, interacting with each other, and I'm pretty sure the joke was just, like, 
these are two famous black comedians that were basically cast to play the same part in two different movie franchises. Again, not relevant to this podcast. I just thought it was funny. That is pretty funny. I like it. So, Josh, when you were growing up, did your family do like the nativity, the crash as a Christmas decoration? Maybe you still do. I don't know. We did. Uh, we had that old school porcelain one. I'm trying to remember if we had like the actual barn around it or not. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, it had all the sheep, the donkey, Mary Joseph, baby Jesus, and the wise men. Mm-hmm. Did your wise men also have camels? Because sometimes you see that. No, we didn't. Um, not in that one. But yeah. What about you? Did you have that growing up? Yeah, my mom had a bunch because I think she had kind of collected them. She had kind of collected them over years. And so we would set up every nativity. It was probably like six or seven different nativity scenes. And I remember that was always like when we pulled down all the Christmas decorations, that was the job I wanted to do. So they would all be set up like in different parts of the house. Some of them were bigger and more elaborate. Some of them were small, but it was it was always fun. But yeah, so they they pretty all pretty much all had, you know, Mary Joseph, baby Jesus, donkey, sheep, cow, angel, shepherds, uh, wise men, sometimes camels. So there were a lot of sort of figures that were always there. Yeah, um, and it always reminds me of the Mr. Bean Christmas episode. I don't know if you've seen it where he's playing with the nativity scene and brings out like a T-Rex to like start chasing after the sheep. And then he pulls out a tank and the dinosaur like beats the tank, but then he pulls out a Dalek from Dr. Who. And then he gets in trouble by the store management because he's inside a store doing it. And it's, it always cracks me up. I love that. I love that. The nativity would be more interesting if it had, dinosaurs and Daleks. I agree. Um, probably wouldn't be able to not play with it at that point. But Absolutely. I thought this was maybe kind of a fun way to get into this topic that we are all so familiar with seeing those images of the nativity scene. And a lot of that is rooted in the Bible. A lot of it is a mashup of multiple sources. And some of it has just sort of been invented as part of the tradition like the donkey is the main thing no nobody ever mentions the the donkey in any of the christmas narratives in the bible but we're just like poor mary could not have walked all the way to bethlehem they must have had a donkey for her to ride on because otherwise that's just too cruel i guess i never realized that i always see always thought mary rode a donkey but I I probably I don't remember actually reading it. I just remember seeing it in pictures and then those classic tales. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about what the Bible does say about the Christmas story and where some of these details come from and what the significance of these different stories is. And then I think we're going to talk a little bit about some other kind of Christmas imagery and traditions. And then, yeah. We'll be all ready for Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Thank you, Santa Josh. Yeah, so uh, how do we want to get this started? Do we want to talk about what actually occurred? Do we want to talk about, like, the myths that necessarily didn't come? Yeah, maybe uh, let's start in Luke. 
Because in a lot of ways, Luke is like the definitive Christmas story. And especially like to this day, when I read the Christmas story from Luke, in my head, I'm hearing the Charlie Brown Christmas version of it where, um, who is it? Is it Linus that like recites the whole story? It's Linus. Thank you. Yes. Lights, lights, please. <clears throat> and low or whatever, how he says it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Classic, mm-hmm. classic scene. So I still, that's how I hear it in my head. Uh, but this is Luke chapter two. Luke chapter one is super interesting, and I hope we talk about it in a later episode. But we're going to pick up in in Luke chapter two. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. As the story continues, and we'll, we'll get to this, we get uh, the shepherds and the angels. But I thought it was interesting maybe just to pause here and note a couple of things. The first thing I think is interesting is that Luke uh, is really clear about the historical like moment when this happened, right? That uh, Augustus is emperor in Rome. Quirinius is the governor of Syria. So it's kind of uh, placing it within a specific time uh that would be i don't know you could kind of mark that on a calendar of like when did this happen and there's this like census that needs to be taken for the roman taxation and according to luke everyone has to go back to their sort of familial homeland joseph is living in nazareth and galilee he has to go south all the way to Bethlehem, which is not too far from Jerusalem, because that is where his family is from. So he doesn't live there, but that's where his family is from. So that's where he has to go. At least according to Luke, I don't actually know if that's how Roman census taking worked, but it's how it works in Luke. So there you go. He goes with Mary, who is pregnant And while they're there, the time comes for her to give birth. So there are some things that are not totally clear. We don't know how long they were in Bethlehem. Like, I think the kind of image that we have is that she's like eight and a half months pregnant on the road to Bethlehem, that she's like super, super heavily pregnant and ready to to burst, so to speak. Maybe it doesn't say that it doesn't say like how long they were in Bethlehem for this census before the baby was born. Also, as I pointed out, it doesn't say that they had a donkey. It doesn't really say how they traveled to Bethlehem. It just says they went. So that might mean totally on foot. Maybe there were like caravans of people that had to all go the same way and they kind of went together. It's it just doesn't specify. Yeah, that would make sense to have. I was wondering that, like, a caravan would make sense. Like, if all these people have to return to their homelands, you know, like, there's going to be certain routes that people are going to take, and you would join up 
one for safety, two for convenience, and three just because I have to talk to this one person this whole trip. Ugh. <laughs> Especially if you're Mary and you're you are pregnant. Like you probably want a break from Joseph every now and then. And then we get this this detail also in Luke that they laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And that like half a verse has done some heavy lifting in terms of Chris- Christian imagery and imagination. So the manger would be like the food trough for animals where you'd put the hay or whatever. And so that kind of gets spun out to oh, this was a barn or a stable, like they were in the place where all the livestock was kept. Maybe, it doesn't say that, it just mentions the manger. It doesn't say that they were, you know, cuddled up with the cows and the sheep. And I've heard some different interpretations of historically what that would have looked like, which are kind of interesting, but... Uh, again, there's just so much that's left unsaid that I think people kind of have to fill in the gaps. Yeah, I remember reading The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Great book, but he talks about one of the main characters was a shepherd and the sheep weren't stationary animals. Like there was a reason that they needed a shepherd. So I'm assuming a lot of the animals were that kind of situation too. So yeah, it might not have been might have been outside the city limits even that they just had this thing set up where the shepherds and the individuals that were watching over just have a food space set up just in case grazing wasn't good or something like that yeah so one interpretation i've heard and and i think this is based on archaeology and what's known about the ancient near east during this time period Uh, my understanding is that they didn't build big barns the way that we would think of like a big red barn that you see in a in a farmhouse in this country but that actually it might have just been there would be a place with like a small cave or like a rocky overhang that would be a little bit shielded from the elements and that might be where you would kind of shelter your animals at night So that's one image, and that makes for a very different nativity. If you imagine Mary and Joseph, like, in a cave or, like, just under a rock that's sort of sheltering them from the wind. Very different image than being in a a cozy red barn. The other thing that I've heard, and this is uh, specifically this, this idea of the inn, that, you know, in this time period, there is not a... There's not like a hotel industry, if that makes sense, right? When you would travel to a different place, and especially in this context where they're traveling to Joseph's family's ancestral homeland, you would probably stay with relatives. And that was sort of the assumption in this time period that you just had to provide hospitality for people. And even if it's like, your third cousin twice removed, it's like, oh, yeah, like, of course, we'll take you in because that's just what you have to do. That like that's the the hospitality mandate. So that may be part of it. This idea of there being like an inn, maybe not what we think of as like, you know, the Holiday Inn or the Best Western on the side of the highway with the no vacancy sign. It it might have been much more sort of like household based. And then there are some questions also about like, okay, well, what does that mean that there was no place for them? Oh, that because that could raise a lot of questions because, you know, at this point, Joseph wasn't married. 
but his wife was pregnant. Like, I'm assuming that, you know, that whole thing kind of got, well, would still get people up in arms and being like, hey, I don't, yeah, why don't you stay away from us? That's possible, yeah. And Matthew gets more into that kind of, like, social scandal side of the story. Uh, just looking at the the original Greek real quickly, um, the word that's translated as in, my dictionary says it can also just mean guest room. So again, that kind of puts a different spin on it, right? If there's no place for them in the guest room, some other relatives got to town earlier, they're already in the guest room and there's a, you know, there's an air mattress set up in the living room and there's just no more place to put people. I mean, it wasn't, looking back, the houses weren't huge places and if it you know say like you said maybe it was a third cousin and how do you fit your entire family if a lot of them went to other cities but now all had to come back could be elderly could be disabled like how do you like hey you guys are still young you know you're not having the baby yet you know we don't have any room for you right now yeah so the other kind of image that i've heard described and again like I am not an archaeologist, like, I don't know exactly where this evidence comes from, but uh, that one way that people would build their houses is that the the familial part of the house would be on the second story, and the lower level would be uh, actually where you would bring your animals in at night. So there'd be kind of a lower level where, you know, your chickens or your little goat or whatever, they would all kind of come in for the night. Because that's going to keep them warm, and honestly, it's going to keep you warm if you're in the room above them, and there's all their body heat. And so that's another possibility, is like, okay, there was no more space for Mary and Joseph in the family part of the house, and so they said, okay, well, you have to be down with the animals, that's the only place we have for you. So again, that's just another kind of possibility, and it maybe shifts the way that we think about the context of Jesus being born. You know, maybe they said, Mary and Joseph, you're going to have to stay in the downstairs room. We're so sorry. Jesus comes in the middle of the night. There's no time to kind of change the circumstances. And so, you know, there's Jesus in the manger where the hay would go. Yeah. And I'd like to imagine that Jesus was a pretty quick and easy birth for Mary. Like, not that 16 hours of labor. Like, I'm a, I'm really assuming that it was just like, hey, son of God, I'm just going <laughs> to get this over with, not put her through a ton of misery. We we can hope, right? It doesn't, again, this is another thing that it doesn't say. It doesn't say if it was an easy labor. It doesn't say that Mary had a midwife or even like female relatives that were there helping her. It just doesn't say. And I think it's so human of us to want to fill in those details. I've seen uh, things online where it's like, wise women also came and it's like in the wise men who we'll talk about there in Matthew they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh and it's like okay but there were also wise women who showed up with like diapers and clean clothes and like something for Mary to eat things that would have been a little more useful in the the newborn period but anyway so there's a lot of uh details left out what we get from Luke is they had to travel to Bethlehem and they laid Jesus in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn or the guest room. 
So we get sort of the rough outline and a lot of the kind of Christmas imagery we have has been filling in those gaps for 2,000 years of people wanting more of the story. After that, uh, this is Luke 2, starting in verse 8, we get the announcement to the shepherds. So the scene shifts. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. This is Linus in my head. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. The angels depart. The shepherds say, oh, let's go check it out. So they go into Bethlehem. They find uh, Mary and Joseph just as they were told. And they tell Mary uh, what the angels said. And it says Mary kind of treasured these words and pondered them in her heart. This is not the first angelic message that Mary has gotten, but she is apparently keeping keeping a list. Yeah, uh, just you talking about that is just bringing flashbacks of children's Christmas pageant or shows, pageants, services, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about the, you know, a group of us, they would huddle up, and it was the shepherds, and one of half of them going, "Let's go to Bethlehem," and the others, "Yes, let's go," and then you would run down the aisle <laughs> to the back of the church, and then yeah, and like the the adorable little kids with the like angel wings and little like uh, pipe cleaner halos, yeah so dang cute love it it's adorable uh again just myth busting like all of our beloved christmas traditions the angel according to luke is not at the place where jesus is born so your angel should not be in your nativity scene uh the angel shows up out in the hill country to these shepherds is not actually there at the place also, uh, this actually came up uh, at this holiday party that we went to. How did the shepherds know where to find the baby Jesus? And a bunch of people said the star, the star is in Matthew. No star in Luke. You all got that wrong in Bible trivia. Also, I mean, a star over a city is not going to be narrow it down that much for shepherds that are relatively close. Like it could feel like the star is like right there. Um, and, you know, I was talking, we were talking earlier about the family could be shepherds because, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say it. Christmas, birth of Jesus didn't necessarily happen in December. So they might have been out in the fields that could have been family members, these shepherds. I don't know. I mean, it's just a, a theory, but, you know, maybe that's how they knew how to go there. Yeah. And that's that's a good point, right? Like Christmas being December 25th, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. Um, there's a, a pretty solid argument to be made that Christians set the date of Christmas close to when the winter solstice was, uh, close to a Roman festival, so that they could kind of uh, co-opt some of that attention or like cultural significance. And help with, like, the conversion of pagans or Romans to the Christian faith. Might have hijacked that 
Mm -hmm. So the argument goes. Uh, So, yeah. So the shepherds see the angels, which I guess angel and heavenly hosts. We assume it's more angels, but we don't know for sure what a heavenly host is. But it does say it does say in verse 15 when the angels plural had left them. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's like one angel and then a whole backup chorus and then they all leave. You know, me being me, have to ask what what type of angel are they seeing? Are they seeing like the covered in eyeball angel, or are they seeing one that looks a little more human figure like? Right, uh, the biblically accurate angels, uh, which is I think mostly taken from Ezekiel, where it's like wheels of eyes and many wings and stuff. Um, yeah, we don't know. Angels look weird. Uh, the idea that they look like people in white robes with wings is. As far as I know, nowhere in the Bible. Yeah, so the shepherds go and find uh, Mary and Joseph. They find the baby. Uh, and this appears to all happen in a single night. Sorry, big Ebenezer Scrooge vibes. They could do it in a single night. Ebenezer. Thank you. So that when they find um, Jesus, he's still lying in the manger. I don't think they kept Jesus lying in the manger for like weeks or months. That was probably a pretty short term solution, which is going to that's going to contrast with what we read in Matthew. Um, so we'll have to we'll have to go over to that. Anything else we should say about Luke before we switch gears? Um, I don't really have anything else for about Luke, um, just that uh, I love when, you know, later on when Jesus is a child, a little bit older, in the temple, and they couldn't find him, and he's like, yeah, where else would I be? And he's sitting there and, like, having this discussion with faith leaders, and probably assumingly rabbis, and educating them, and, like, having that, like, good conversation back and forth as, like, a small child. Yes. Um, yeah, Luke is the only place that we get a, a depiction of Jesus as a child. Uh, and it is this incident where he's like 12 and he stays behind in Jerusalem and his parents can't find him and it's a whole thing. It's really interesting because I think there are, again, we want to know about those like missing years. We want to know what Jesus was like as a kid. Um, there are actually books that are not in the New Testament canon, uh, extra books uh, that talk about Jesus as a child, and they are hilarious. And I feel like at some point we should talk about the infancy gospel of Thomas on a different episode. But yes, different different idea of what Jesus was like as a kid in that book. Yeah, I, I would love that because, yeah, I think that would that's always kind of, you know, Jesus outside of being born to age in his 30s. So, yeah, let's take a note of that. Yeah, for sure. Put it on the list. So, um, in Matthew, uh, Matthew starts with a genealogy. Um, Luke also has a genealogy. It happens a little bit later. It happens after the actual Christmas story. Matthew does genealogy right off the bat. And if you want to hear about the interesting figures in the genealogy in Matthew you should listen to our previous episode because that's exactly what we talked about. And it's really interesting. It is really interesting. I agree. So, yeah. Um, and it's, you know, looking at the birth of Jesus, it's pretty quick in Matthew. It is 
like a paragraph and a half long. It is just, here it is. This happened. Yeah. Um, so Luke is where we really get a lot of our imagery of the Christmas, the first Christmas. Um, Matthew's is more abbreviated. And I, I should also just note that John doesn't talk about Jesus's birth except to say the word became flesh and lived among us. So John takes this very kind of mystical, metaphorical kind of approach to it. And Mark has nothing to say about it. Um, the joke about Mark is that his gospel is the let's get down to business of the gospels because Mark's like, okay, Jesus is getting baptized. Like, we're off to the races. That's why Mark was always my favorite to, like, have to go over just because it was like, we're just going to get straight to the points. It's the cliff notes. We got shit to do. Yeah. Yeah, I love, there are so many places in Mark where it's like, and then suddenly this happened, and then suddenly this happened. It's like that gospel is at a breakneck pace. But anyway, back to Matthew. Uh, so we have the genealogy, which traces from um, Abraham, the great patriarch, all the way down to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So not Joseph, the father of Jesus, but Joseph, the husband of Mary. Which I don't remember if I brought it up last time, but is is crazy to me that, you know, Jesus is always referred to as the son of David, you know, descendant of David. I mean, technically, no, because unless Mary had some of that, you know, but and she might have. But Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. Yeah. And people do get tripped up by that. Um, and I think what's important to remember is that. Uh, even in the time of the Bible, biological family is not the only way to define family, right? And uh, actually, we saw in the last episode when we talked about uh, Leveret marriage that you could be the biological father of a child who is actually considered your deceased brother's heir. So even like even in the Hebrew Bible, there are these instances where it's like, the biological father is not the father who counts. And I think Matthew is drawing on that same tradition to say, yeah, Jesus is in the household that's descended from David because of Joseph. And that Joseph actually is an important part of this family as the stepfather, right? Or as the kind of adoptive father, of Jesus. Matthew's very clear that he's not the biological father of Jesus, but his position and his kind of link in this family chain is still important, which I think is cool. So let's get into it because I think that um, Matthew centers a lot more of the story on Joseph. Uh, in Luke, we get very little about Joseph and certainly very little about what Joseph thought about all of this. In Luke, the the announcement comes to Mary. Mary goes and visits her relative Elizabeth, and the two of them have kind of <laughs> time to process this uh, situation together. Joseph is a pretty silent um, side character in Luke's version. Matthew's version is going to look much more at, well, what did Joseph think about all of this? So in Luke's gospel, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you are going to have this child. Matthew's version is different. Matthew's version goes like this. This is Matthew 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. 
When his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So in this version, Joseph is the one who gets an announcement or a message from an angel. And it's kind of in this pivotal moment where Mary is pregnant and Joseph is not the father. And Joseph knows he's not the father, right? Everybody else in town might be speculating, but like Joseph knows. And so he is going to dismiss her, right? At, at this point, Joseph kind of has in his mind, two options. Option one, he can accuse Mary of adultery and have her stoned in the public square, right? That would be the, let's say, asshole option. Option two, in Joseph's mind, is he can basically just say, okay, Mary, like, we're done, uh, and dismiss her. This is still really bad for Mary, because everyone is going to know she was supposed to get married to Joseph. She got pregnant. They're not getting married anymore, right? Like her position in the community has been absolutely just nuked. And Joseph sees that still as the kinder option that he's going to try to like let her go with some dignity. But he must know that this is still going to ruin her life, right? And it's in this moment that the angel shows up and says, no, actually, Joseph, you have a third option and you're going to take this third option. And the third option is you're going to marry her knowing full well that you are not the father of this baby. And the reason you're going to do that is because this child is actually from the Holy Spirit and is the Messiah and is going to save the people from their sins. So basically like, hey, Joseph, you're being brought into kind of a higher calling that you're going to need to rise to the occasion. Uh, and so Joseph does. He does exactly what the angel says. He takes Mary as his wife, has no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and they name the baby Jesus. So the other thing that's interesting here is that we don't get the actual kind of pregnancy and birth. We don't get any details about that. It's like, Joseph waits until this baby is born and then names the baby Jesus. And like, did Mary have an easy pregnancy? Did Mary have a hard pregnancy? How was she feeling? We don't know. None of that is included in the narrative. You just have to assume and hope for the right. best. Right, yeah. Let's hope Mary had a lot of family support. Because uh, Joseph, I mean, he's doing the right thing, but he does not seem super engaged in this pregnancy, shall we say. And then in Matthew chapter 2, we get the real emphasis of Matthew's version of this story. I mean, the thing with Joseph is important, but then what happens in chapter 2 is the part that gets folded into our Christmas mythology because this is where we get the wise men and the star and the gifts. So this is Matthew's version of 
not really Christmas, and we'll talk about why that is, but Matthew chapter 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and then quoting Micah, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. So just to, to take a step back here, again, we get a kind of orientation in socio-political context. In this case, we're not talking about the Roman hierarchy, but we are talking about Herod. Herod is um, the king of Judea. He is operating as a puppet king, sort of at the pleasure of the Roman Empire. Rome is in charge. Herod is being allowed to rule this little area. But he has to keep things handled and not piss Rome off. And so then we get these wise men, um, and we'll talk about who exactly they are. But these wise men show up to Herod's palace in Jerusalem and say, we're here to see the baby, right, who is born king of the Jews. And Herod is terrified because Herod has not just welcomed an heir into his household, right? He doesn't have a new baby who is supposed to be king of the Jews, which means there is some other baby somewhere that these wise men have come to recognize. Herod finds out from his kind of experts in the court that the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod knows he's not the Messiah. His sons are not the Messiah. These wise men who have come from the East did not come to prop up Herod's power. And in fact, the news that they're bringing is an existential threat to Herod's power and position. So it's bad from Herod's point of view. So Herod finds out from the wise men exactly when did the star appear. The idea here is that when a, an important figure is born, that's the moment that this star appeared that the wise men saw. So Herod has a location. From them, he gets a date. And then he tells the wise men, go to Bethlehem, find the Messiah, then come back and let me know where he is, and then I'll also go take him a present. And you can imagine Herod is saying this like with a dagger behind his back because he wants to kill Jesus. The wise men go to Bethlehem. They follow the star. It stops over the place where the child was. I don't know how that works. Stars don't stop over specific buildings, but apparently in this story they do. The wise men say, hey, that's the place. They go inside. They see the child with Mary. They give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then they've been warned not to go back to Herod. So again, an angel has sort of intervened here at a critical moment. So the wise men go back to their own country without seeing Herod. An angel then appears to Joseph again and says, you have to flee. So Joseph picks up the family and flees to Egypt because... Herod is going to come kill this baby. Herod knows that his power is threatened and he is going to take decisive action. And if that means killing a child, so be it. Herod is not a good guy. 
So we get this story in Matthew where the Holy Family, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, the Holy Family are refugees, right? They have to pick up and move for their safety and to protect their lives, and they go to Egypt. And because this is not how, you know, travel worked for most of human history, right? Like, they don't have a visa to go to Egypt. They just go to Egypt and hide out there for a couple years. But anyway, cutting back to Herod, Herod is pissed because his little evil plot has been foiled. And so what Herod does is something truly awful. Herod knows where the Messiah is supposed to be born, and Herod knows how old the Messiah is supposed to be. And so it says in Matthew uh, 2.16, Herod sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. This is known as the slaughter of the innocents. It's awful, right? Uh, this is what Pharaoh tried to do. This is what Pharaoh succeeded in doing in Exodus, right? When the people were slaves in Egypt. It's genocide. It's murdering children. And in Herod's case, he is going to kill all the kids in Bethlehem to try to find that one kid who he is really threatened by. Joseph has already taken the family to Egypt, so Herod doesn't get what he wants. But also, a whole bunch of innocent children are killed because this is, this is how far Herod is willing to go to protect his own power. So it's a really awful, dark moment that is folded into the Christmas story. We don't talk about this part on Christmas Eve, right? But I think it's important. It is important. And yeah, it's very rarely ever mentioned. Yeah, because we, we, we kind of hear about it like, oh, he has this plot to kill all the children. Like, no, it wasn't just a plot. Like, he actually ordered it. Like, hey, you know what? There is a so-called king out there that could be threatening my position or my family's position. No, we're not doing this. Go kill everybody that could possibly fit this description. Yeah, it's awful. And to kind of bring it back to our, our conversation about the nativity sets... And, and to be on a little bit of a lighter note, because I know, like, this is a really horrible, dark moment in the Bible. When we set up our nativity scenes at home at Christmas time and we put the wise men in there, there's kind of this idea that everybody showed up at the same moment, right? Mary and Joseph are there and the animals are there and the shepherds are there and the wise men come in. And it's kind of all in this one moment while Jesus is still lying in the manger. So it's all like in the same night. First of all, the shepherds and the wise men are in different books. Uh, they are not in the same narrative. But also, according to Matthew, th by the time the wise men show up, Jesus is, you know, a toddler, right? He's 18 months, two years old, that kind of time frame. So it's not like the wise men showed up right then on Christmas. They come along a fair bit later. And so they shouldn't be in your nativity scene. They're so late to the party. The actual festival that is supposed to celebrate the wise men coming to see Jesus is Epiphany, which is January 6th. But even then, it's like if Jesus is born this December, then it should be the epiphany of like a year later that the wise men finally show up. But that's, that's not how the church works. So we just do it like two weeks later. Yeah. So if you really want to set your nativity scene up correctly, um, you should take your wise men and put them like in a completely different room on the furthest edge of the house and then slowly move them throughout the year. Because it was, it was a long trip. 
Right? And I've actually seen churches do that if the church has a nativity, that they'll start with the wise men, like, across the room, and then the wise men will gradually get closer and closer, which I think is cute. I like that. That is, and it's really just, like, a interesting fact to, like, you know, communicate more with your fellow congregation members. Like, oh, that's because the wise men, you know, the Christmas kind of got blended together to make this super Christmas story. We've talked a fair bit about Herod, but I do want to come back and talk about who these wise men are. Uh, And the simplest answer to that question is that they are not we three kings of Orient are. First of all, Orient is a pretty outdated term. Second of all, they're not kings. And third of all, there's not three of them. So that whole song is a problem. It, uh really really uh stretches what the narrative says yeah if it was that a big of a deal you'd have to be more than three it's probably just three because the three gifts are mentioned exactly exactly so that that's where it comes from there are three gifts gold frankincense and myrrh so there must be three wise men and later tradition even gave them names they're caspar melchior and balthazar i don't know where those names came from but i do know they're not in the new testament Because Matthew doesn't even say there are three. We just have three gifts. And the translation of them being kings is really pretty inaccurate. What the the Greek says is uh, magoi or magi, which means like a wise man or a magician. If we think about, you know, this is a pre-scientific culture. They didn't really have a, a line between being able to do magic and being wise we kind of think of those as two different things but in the ancient world anybody who kind of had a deep understanding of the natural world was kind of mystical right kind of magical kind of in touch with some stuff that is outside of the realm of ordinary human experience and in this case it's pretty likely that they are what we would call astrologers In the ancient world, there was really pretty advanced astronomy that was being done, especially the like Babylonians had really, really accurate star charts where they were looking up and they were seeing the movement of the constellations and the movement of the planets. And they were making mathematical models for all of that. And they could predict, you know, like 25 years from now on this date, where is this star going to be? And like they could figure that out. So even in a a pre-scientific understanding of like the solar system, they were really expert at thinking about the stars and observing the stars. The Greeks were also doing some of this, but it's likely that that's who these guys were, that they were people who studied the stars, who made very precise observations about the stars, but who also would make spiritual and mythical connections to what they saw in the stars. So kind of like how modern astrology works, right? Of like, oh, Mercury's in retrograde and that means such and such. Yeah, and you think about like how much... You know, let's just, for example, the moon affects Earth and the tides and all that. So if you can predict like, hey, this has happened on the last every 20 years when the stars are lined up like this, this is going to happen. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this dude is magical. This dude can like see the future. Yes and no. Like, yeah, it's because these things are repeating and all that jazz. Yeah. And, you know, to be able to predict something like an eclipse, Mm -hmm. like that's 
that's pretty magical. If you can tell people, hey, on this day, yeah. the sun is going to go dark. Don't panic. We've got it handled, right? Like, yeah, the, those people are magicians. They know things. Especially like early, early on before, you know, when people were still understanding Earth's rotation to the sun and all that, like, that would be terrifying. And all of a sudden, like, no, this is going to happen on this date because something like this, just even half an explanation would be enough to blow people's minds and earn that respect and like acknowledgement. So it's it's probable just based on kind of what we know about this point in history um, that these guys from the East are probably coming from like modern day Iran. I mean, potentially as far as like the Indian subcontinent, right? Which that would be sort of the Far East if you're in uh, Judea. But they're coming from the East. They're coming from a foreign land that would be very different from what Matthew and his original audience were used to. And they have this knowledge of astronomical events and then also the significance or the perceived significance of those events. So they see this star at its rising, is what the text says. That could mean... Maybe they saw a new star appear in the sky, which we would then understand, you know, with a much, a much greater understanding of how stars are formed. Um, okay, a new, a new star became visible. Maybe it was a comet. Maybe it was, you know, like there are different possibilities. But they see this thing happen that is possibly like a once in a lifetime uh, astronomical event, and. They say, oh, this is hugely significant. This must mean that a great leader has been born and we're going to follow this star and figure out where this new king is. So they recognize the significance of this birth because of what they've kind of seen in the night sky. And it's interesting, right, that in the beginning of Matthew, Joseph only gets on board because an angel tells him what to do. Everybody in Jerusalem, like Herod and everybody who's loyal to him, immediately wants to kill the Messiah. And the first people who really come and like pay him his due respect are foreigners. And then the next thing that happens is that the Holy Family becomes refugees. So there are a lot of dynamics in Matthew's version of the story that still carry a lot of resonance for issues that we deal with today about foreigners and refugees and threats to existing power structures. And what what we see in Matthew is that the Messiah is showing up on the sort of outsider side of those lines, that Jesus is born to a woman in the middle of a, you know, familial scandal, that he is welcomed and honored by foreigners who believe very different things than the Jewish people that he is almost killed by the Jewish king and has to flee and be a refugee for many years in Egypt. Like, all of that, it gives the Christmas story a different flavor, right? When we hear these things and think about them in our modern context, like, wow, if Jesus were born today, if we set this story in 21st century America, he's probably not being born to a wealthy family in, you know, Beverly Hills or Manhattan. He's not, you know, born in a summer cottage on Cape Cod. Like, 
no, this is poverty. This is foreigners. This is refugees. This is people who are on the margins in pretty important ways. And I think that that kind of should shape how we think about the Christmas story. Even in the Bible, also, it talks about, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was hungry. You gave me food. And it's like, you kind of relate this back to, you know, how was Jesus treated? How was this refugee family treated when they were fleeing Judea to get to Egypt and couldn't come back until Herod had died? And that is the same gospel, right? So I think that's not an accident that you have these events at the beginning of the story and then almost at the end of Matthew's gospel, you have that parable about whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. So what happens to the infant Jesus is what happens to the promised Messiah, the descendant of David. And it's also what happens to every poor refugee child on the planet today, right? Like these things are all interlinked. Mm -hmm. Which makes that parable even more relatable for Jesus to explain, you know, hey, no, this wasn't just a, an example. Like this was my life. Right. I grew up on the run and even now in my adulthood when I'm preaching the gospel or the truth and trying to save people, I'm still being treated as a refugee or this outcast. Yeah. By some. For sure. The Bible's really cool, it turns out. It's kind of fascinating. More fascinating than I think you might think. It's true. It's true. Somebody should do a podcast about it. Right? That would be interesting. I'd probably listen to that. <laughs> Josh, thank you, as always, for indulging me. Absolutely. You know I love our conversations, even when the microphone's not on. Um, yeah, there was a lot more we wanted to talk about for, you know, Christmas in general, but I think focusing on the nativity was a good one for our first year of doing our Christmas specials, and... Yeah, we can bring that other stuff up later. I, I already have a couple things planned for next Christmas. We got to leave some, some meat on the bone. Good, good. I'm all down for that. So we'll keep that up. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Also thank my friend Jenny for letting me do this with her. Yeah, back at you. Anytime. Um, any, any final words? Yeah, I hope everybody has a wonderful Christmas. If you are able to spend time with family, I hope that's joyful. If you're not able to spend time with loved ones, I hope that you still feel the, the love and the care that surrounds you. And we will see you in the new year. Have a great holiday season, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to A Reverend Bible Talk. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us at soundcloud.com slash irreverentbible. And remember, just like Balaam and his donkey learned, sometimes even God communicates through a talking ass. Thank you.